Well, good morning again. Um, first of all, I want to say how it was really good to see so many of you uh, come out last week to our resurrection drive through here at the church. Um, it was just, I, I think we had about f- over 50 cars, which, you know, that's about 100, 150 different of you that were able to come out and, and make it. And it was, it was a great time. It was good to see familiar faces again. I know that for some of you, um, it was kind of a little bit of a emotionally, you're emotionally shaken just for that reason, to be able to come to church um, and to see a little bit of the church family. Um, at the same time, I think that all of you were probably physically shaken. Uh, thanks to our state-of-the-art earthquake simulation that we had in place, uh, I hope that uh, you enjoyed that. And I hope that not many of you were injured. If you were, please let us know. We can get you the number two Dr. Hicks office. But last week we celebrated Resurrection Day, the best day of the year. Uh, in my opinion, I'm sure for many of you as well. But this is a day that we celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from dead, the fact that uh, he is the first fruits. Uh, he is uh, the, the sign uh, of the coming harvest. Uh, he is uh, the proof that God accepted. His resurrection is the proof that God accepted uh, him as a sacrifice and a substitute for us. Um, and so that is one incredible reason for us to celebrate it. And as Luke reminded us last week that the resurrection has so much meaning for us because of the cross. Um, it is the most important event in all of human history. I mean, you go back all the way, you know, back to creation. Uh, you go back thousands of years to, to, to creation. You look at the present day we live in. You also look way off into the future, into all eternal, eternity. And this is the most uh, important event that takes place. The one event that is above all others, the cross and the empty tomb. It's the turning point, uh, the turning point of all human history. It's the one event that will never be forgotten. Um, It was prophesied about in the garden of Eden and will be sung about forever on the new earth, the cross and the empty tomb. And the one place that you read about this, this, these events of the cross and the tomb are in the gospels. That's the one place you can read about uh, what took place. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, you know, each of these tell the story of Jesus and they build up to that. At the end of those gospels, it tells us about him dying and rising to new life for us. But one thing that kind of stood out to me recently, there is something that that stood out to me just a, a few weeks ago, I was reading in the book of Acts, just in the first few chapters, and I realized that there's a lot here, just the first few chapters of Acts, about the resurrection of Christ. When you look at those first few chapters, it's kind of picking up a couple months after the resurrection. And in, the, in those few chapters, there's a couple different you know, speeches that Peter gives to large Jewish crowds and in those talks that he gives, he mentions a lot about the resurrection of Christ. And so it made me understand that to realize that to really completely understand all that was taking place 
in that event of the resurrection that is written about at the end of the gospels, you have to keep reading past the end of the gospels into the book of Acts. Uh, And if you don't, then you'll be missing a number of very important pieces Uh, because while the gospels tell us the story of the resurrection, the book of Acts gives us fascinating insights into the meaning of the resurrection and all that it means for us. So specifically, if you look at those first four chapters of Acts, and that's what I want to take a look at with you this morning is those first four chapters in the book of Acts and what we can learn about the proof and the power and the eternal plan of the resurrection. Uh, you know, the evidence behind the resurrection, the, the, the effectiveness that it had on the people that were there uh, at that time and also the eternal plan that went in and that was behind the resurrection. So if you have a Bible, I'd love, I wanna give you a moment to just grab it there at home if you have one near you and to open it up to Acts chapter one. Um, I think it's always good uh, if you have a Bible to be able to open it up and look at these passages for yourself. It just, it makes it a little bit more real and personal uh, when you look at it in your own, your own Bible. So if you have a Bible, open it to Acts chapter one, and that's where we're going to start in verse three. In verse three, it says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them for four, during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You know, usually when we think about the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection, usually just a few instances come to mind. You know, we think of, okay, yeah, Jesus appeared to Mary right afterwards. Uh, Later that day, he appeared to the disciples as well. Um, And then of course, it comes to our mind that Jesus appeared to all the disciples on the Mount of Olives right before he ascended up into heaven. But usually it's just, you know, those or maybe another of the few instances of Jesus appearing to people after his resurrection. But when you look at this verse in Acts 1, verse 3, it, it doesn't say few. It says many. It says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many convincing proofs. In fact, the literal word here for proofs being used is tekmerios. And here are the different definitions that you'll find when you look up that specific word. It's the, the, words, uh, the defining words are indisputable, unmistakable, and irrefutable. I mean, that's why when you look up the English translations for it, it says a sure sign, uh, a certain proof, a convincing proof. Basically, the writer of Acts here is trying to communicate that there was no one who was like, wait, was that? Jesus, could it, well, didn't he die at the Passover? Yeah, he, it, it can't be. Maybe I'm just hallucinating. No one said that. These were all indisputable proofs of his resurrection when he appeared. The only doubting that took place was Thomas. And that's because he wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them. But later on, eight days later, when he was with them and Jesus appeared again, Immediately, Thomas falls down and says, my Lord and my God, he knew it was Jesus. In fact, there are at least 10 different 
appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. At least 10. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, then to another group of women, then to Peter, then to two men walking to Emmaus, then to the disciples without Thomas, then the disciples again, this time with Thomas, then to seven disciples on shore of Galilee, then the disciples at a mountain in Galilee, then to James, the half-brother of Jesus, then the disciples on the Mount of Olives right before Jesus ascends to heaven. Not only that, but we also know that it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse six, that Jesus appeared to more than 500, at least 500 men at the same time. At the same time. Now it's possible that that appearance was the same one being mentioned on the mountains of Uh, on some mountain in Galilee, but it's also very possible that that's an entirely different appearance of Jesus as well. Not only that, but look what it says in Acts 2. Peter is speaking to a large crowd of Jewish men who had gathered together there at Pentecost. And in verse 22, he addresses them and he says, men of Israel. And then just a few verses later in verse 29, he addresses them as brothers. And then look what it says in verse 32. Just a couple of verses later, he says, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses of this fact. Now it's possible that Peter is just referring to himself and the other disciples, but it definitely gives you the impression that he might also be including those that he is addressing, that they also saw the risen Jesus after his death. Either way, it's many convincing proofs. As it says in Acts 1-3, Jesus left no doubt that he had risen from the dead. Jesus talked with his disciples after his resurrection. He, he, he walked with them. Uh, he let them touch him. Um, he ate food with them. In fact, in Acts 1 verse 3, notice what it says at the end of the verse. It says that during the 40 days after his resurrection, he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. So Jesus used these 40 days to continue to teach the disciples about God's kingdom. And this is important. This is really important, all this evidence and proof, because your faith in the resurrection of Christ has very solid proof behind it. Very solid. I mean, the strongest evidence has always been eyewitness testimony. And Jesus had over 500 men and women who were firsthand eyewitnesses to his resurrection, that he did rise from the dead. And when you think about it, you know, now the world we live in and what's going on as a whole, it's, it's crazy because it's, it's as if this topic, death, is something that we are talking about and thinking about as a whole nation more than we ever have in, in our history. Uh, maybe not, but I mean, every day it's in the news. You know, what's the new total? What, uh, who's at risk? What should I do? Don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. It's a real fear that people have uh, nowadays be, uh, of death, this fear of death. I mean, just yesterday I saw someone driving, just them, no one else, windows up, mask on. You know, I don't know about that person, but for many people, death is a real fear right now. But for us who follow Christ, we never need 
to fear our own death. Never. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead and he gave many convincing proofs. And if he rose up in glory, so also will we. As it says in Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Death is the doorway into true life. Death swings the doors wide open into heaven. This is what's in store for us. And what's the best part of it is that this is the one time that something good doesn't have to come to an end. And that phrase is out the window at this point. It's one good thing that will never come to an end. This is why all this proof of the resurrection is so important. Now, another thing that you notice in the first few chapters of the uh, book of Acts is that Jesus is very forgiving. Very, very, very forgiving. It's a, if you could try something there where you are, try in your mind to picture an image that represents forgiveness. Like if you could say to some image or, or picture like that, now that's forgiveness, what would it be? if you had to come up with an image. I tried to do this myself and I come up, came up with a couple different images uh, that depict forgiveness to me. Uh, here's one of them. Some of you may recognize this scene. It's from the movie Les Miserables or however you pronounce it. Um, but it's not the musical, the other one where they talk their words. But uh, this is the scene where the priest not only forgives the man who stole from him and struck him in the face, but he then gives to him more than he attempted to steal. He gives him this incredible treasure, something he could never repay in return for his crime. So it's incredible forgiveness and an unbelievable gift. And it transformed this man's life. Now, I also thought of one more image, one more picture came to mind that represented forgiveness, at least to me. And this is probably call it a little bit more of a modern day example. And some of you sports fans may uh, recall this one, if you remember what sports are. But this one happened in 2010. In 150 years of Major League Baseball, only 23 times has a pitcher thrown a perfect game. And that's including well over 200,000 games in uh, Major League Baseball's history. Only 23 times it's taken place. It's one of the greatest accomplishments in all sports. And the night before this picture was taken, the man on the right, the pitcher, threw a perfect game. But the umpire that you see in the picture made the wrong call, and therefore the perfect game was taken away from him. It doesn't count. Now, you could easily say, that no pitcher has been robbed of more than this man. His name is Armando Galarraga. But the next day, when this picture was taken, he walked up to home plate, patted the umpire on the back, and forgave him. And when asked about it, he simply said, everyone makes mistakes. And that's incredible forgiveness. It's really a great example of forgiveness. And these are a a couple of pretty good examples of 
forgiveness, but they are nothing, nothing compared to the forgiveness of Jesus. They're not even in the same universe as him. I mean, just imagine if you had a perfect memory and you had to recall and write down the worst 100 sins that you have ever committed. You had to write them down. And then you had to hand it over and let someone else read it. And we all had to do that. I mean, we would look at these lists and think, man, how could Jesus forgive any of us? But he does. He forgives us when we repent. Not only that, but we think, man, there are a lot of people worse than I. I mean, there's, there's things that people do that are things I wouldn't even think about doing. You know, murderers, rapists, child abusers, blasphemers of God, on and on. And yet these are the people also who are turning to Christ, whose lives are being changed. They're being transformed. All their horrible sins forgiven through repentance, just like our own. And then it's kind of like you could almost, you could almost uh, have another set or uh, another group of people that almost fit into their own category. And we would put, such people, we would, we would call it the, the, the people who were personally involved in crucifying Jesus. And I, those who were physically involved in arresting Jesus, who shouted, crucify him. Those who condemned him, those who flogged him, those who mo- mocked him, those who nailed him to a cross or who stood by and watched and did nothing. I mean, we think how could anyone be around such a perfect person and then be involved in torturing him to death. Surely these people should never, ever be given an opportunity to be forgiven. I mean, their crimes are of infinite evil. It's easy for us to see in this situation. But then look at what it says in Acts 2, verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. Peter says, you saw his mighty works, all his you know, amazing wonders and signs They were all done right in front of your eyes. You were a witness to it. You saw it. You yourselves know. And yet you crucified him. You killed him. You handed him over to lawless men. Look also what it says in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You crucified the Lord. You crucified the Messiah that we were all waiting for. The one God anointed and chose. In some ways, it's, it's as if this in some ways is the worst group of humans imaginable. They were personally involved in crucifying Jesus. They had the most light in front of them. So it almost seems like it takes the most darkness inside to do what they did. 
But then just a few verses later, look at what it says. Verse 41. So those who received Peter's word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Just like that. Forgiven. The worst of humanity. Those who willingly put Jesus to death. Those who put to death the author of life. I mean, that's the exact words it says in Acts 3, verses 13 to 15. It says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Wow. I mean, Peter's talking to the very people who denied Jesus as their Messiah, who insisted that Pilate not release him, but instead release a murderer. But then Peter calls for them to repent in verse 19. And you see what happens just a few verses later in chapter four, chapter three, 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The result, chapter four, verse four, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. I mean, this is forgiveness that to us, it doesn't even make sense. There's there's nothing to compare it to. 5,000 people, many of whom personally played a part in making sure that Jesus suffers immense pain. And Jesus says, it's okay. I forgive you. I'm glad that you want to be a part of my family. Welcome. It's just unfathomable forgiveness. It really makes you stop and think, man, how have I been offended in comparison with this? And how can I withhold forgiveness to anyone? In light of this, how much am I willing to forgive? How can I ever say to anyone, you know, or about anyone, I don't ever want to talk to them again because of what they did to me. When Jesus forgave us, us personally of so much, and he forgives anyone who repents. And you know what? This is just a wild guess, but it's very possible that there may be a strained relationship inside your home right now, someone in the same quarantined house as you. And and maybe it's a conflict that happened just yesterday. I don't know. But this is a question that we can ask ourselves, which is very easy to answer. Is what happened to me worse than being crucified without a crime? Obviously not. And then we read in Ephesians 4, 32, it says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians three thirteen, bear with each other and forgive any complaint you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So forgive one another. As God forgave you, as Christ forgave you, follow his example. So this is a second thing that we learn about 
the resurrection of Christ in the first few chapters of Acts, that Jesus is very, very forgiving, including forgiving of many who were personally involved in carrying out his death. And, and he calls us to forgive just like him. Now, one more thing that really stands out in the first few chapters of the book of Acts is how completely in control God is of everything that takes place regarding the crucifixion and resurrection, that God is completely in control. One question that regard, one question a lot of people ask, and I, I'm sure you've probably heard it a hundred times yourself, is why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? It's a very common question. You know, if God is in control, then wouldn't he prevent these horrible things to happen from happening? I mean, have you ever wondered this yourself? I know I myself have, have tried and worked through this, this question, but this is what some people say proves that there is no God. Because how could a good God allow these type of horrible things to happen to such good people? But then you start to think, wait a minute, you look at Jesus and he knows exactly what this is like because the worst act of all humanity happened to him, the best person. And the Bible says that all of it was completely in God's control. Look at Acts 2 verse 23. It says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Pastor Luke talked last week uh, from, and he shared from Isaiah 53, all these different detailed descriptions and aspects of the crucifixion, uh, especially in resurrection of Christ, that they're being written down 700 years before uh, actually taking place. You know, how could this happen? Obviously we know that God sees the future, but it's more than that. That's a part. It's not just because God sees the future. God writes it. He is in control. Isaiah 53 verse 10, that same chapter, it says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the father has put him, the son to grief. Now, if God is in control, we think these type of things would never take place, but we see that God was the one who was ultimately in control of putting Jesus on the cross. It was all his plan all along to provide a way of salvation. Even Jesus himself says this. He says in John 10 verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. So God was in complete control of the planning and allowing of this horrible act of humanity. And it says the same thing in Acts chapter four, verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city, we're gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. And this is a prayer that's being offered to God, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Herod, Pilate, you know, the Romans, the Jews, they were all personally involved in putting Jesus to death. They are guilty. But at the same time, in a, 
a realm we can't even fathom, God was behind it all. It says that his hand was carrying it out. It says that his plan was taking place. It says that all of it, everything that took place was predestined by him to take place. Now, the reason that I'm bringing this up is because if the worst thing that has ever taken place, the worst act of humans in all of history has turned out to be in God's control. And if it brings about the greatest good that's ever been accomplished, then we can be assured that whatever bad that appears to be taking place in our own lives, that God is in control and that he has a good plan for it, a good purpose behind it. Our part is simply to trust him and to wait on him. And once again, do we need an example? Again, we can just look around, look around at the world around us. It is, I mean, everything is turned upside down. The whole world, I mean, everything has changed dramatically so quickly. Uh, I'm sure for, all, for most of us, our lives have changed greatly. Everything, our job or school, our, our relationships, our kids, our income, our savings, our future, our, our plans for the future, um, our day-to-day life. Everything is up in the air. Everything is out of order. Nothing is stable. Nothing is constant. And it appears to us like it did for the disciples right after the death of Jesus that there's no way that God could be in control of this. It sure doesn't seem so. And we feel like those two followers of Christ that were walking on the road to Emmaus that it mentions in Luke 24, and they are completely shocked at all that has happened and how suddenly. I mean, imagine you can kind of put yourself in those two disciples of Christ. You can put them in their, in their shoes. Just imagine if you were walking around the lake in Oconomowoc with somebody, just the two of you, you're walking around the lake and you're of course talking about what's been going on the last month or two. And suddenly you hear from behind you a voice saying, excuse me, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I heard you guys talking about something called a coronavirus or decoded 19. Um, it sounds really interesting. What exactly are you talking about? <laughs> You'd be like, what? First of all, back up. You're not six feet away, but are you, are you kidding? Are you, we'd answer like, we'd reply like the disciples did. Are you the only person, are you the only human on earth that doesn't know what has taken place in the last two months? For the disciples, it was just for the last two days. Are you the only one who doesn't know? I mean, for the disciples were devastated what happened. Jesus was gone. Jesus was dead. They even said, those two disciples, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But I guess not. I guess we were wrong. In their minds, there was no way that God was behind all this. But then what happened by the end of that walk? What had taken place in that walk? By the time it was all over, There's no more confusion. Everything made much more sense. Jesus walked with them and explained to them how all this was in the Bible. All this was prophesied about. All this was, you know, planned. 
God had planned these events and something really good is coming from it. It was all God's plan. So for those two men, the confusion was gone. Not only that, but now they had this sense of peace within, this overwhelming sense of peace because they had just taken a walk with Jesus. And you know what? Honestly, I think that is probably the best thing that any of us could do at this point is just to take a walk, just you and your savior, just you and God. Take a walk with Christ. Let him explain how everything is in the father's hands. Everything is in his complete control and that he has something really good in mind for, for you through this. Let him tell you about that. You know, pretend your house is Jerusalem that a few blocks away is Emmaus and take a walk and talk with God, talk with your savior. Let his spirit speak to you and see if by the end of that walk, your, your heart also isn't burning within you and that you don't have this overwhelming sense of peace, a peace that passes understanding. So in the first few chapters of Acts, uh, as we as you continue to read past the end of the gospels and into those first few chapters of Acts, here are a few things that we can learn regarding the resurrection. Number one, that there were many, many convincing proofs that Jesus had risen from the dead. And that only confirms all the more that we will rise with him. That's our hope. That's our confidence. Number two, that Jesus is infinitely forgiving even of so many of those who are personally, physically involved in causing him such immense suffering and pain. He forgives them and we are called to forgive just like him. And number three, God is in control. Even when the worst things happen, as far as they appear to us and bad things happen in our own lives, trust him. He is in control. He has something good for those who are called according to his purpose for those who love him. Just trust him and walk with him. Let's pray. Almighty God, sovereign king of the universe, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see this reality that you are infinitely greater than this tiny ball, this earth that we live on and you are at work and you are doing things far beyond. Your ways are so much higher than our ways. And I pray, Lord, that we would understand your sovereignty, but at the same time, we would also be greatly reminded of your love for us individually, that you sent your son, that he suffered so greatly willingly because of that love. How will you not along with him as your word says, give us all things. Every, how we not trust, Lord, help us to trust that you know what's going on in our lives, that you love us greatly, that you have a plan and that you simply want us to, to trust you and to walk with you, spend time with you. Let, let your voice fill our ears and our minds and not outside voices. I pray that you would help us in that. Thank you, Lord, for these certainties, these solid truths we have from your word to carry us at all times. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray.
Amen. Have a wonderful week.